If you guys could keep that uh, passage of the Bible open, um, I'll be speaking from that, and you'll find it a lot easier to follow along. So let me get myself set up. If you also have one of these outlines, you can follow the talk along with that, and if you like taking notes, you can also take some notes. Let me just pray before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to sit under your word, to hear what it has to say, hear what it has to say about who you are, what you've done, but also who we are. I pray that you'll help me speak clearly and pray that you give us ears that would hear your word and hearts that would respond rightly to it. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've titled this talk, Jesus, Is He Worth It? As many of you know, I'm an unashamed cyclist. I'm, I'm not quite a mammal, you know, that middle-aged man in Lycra. I'm not middle-aged like Pastor Pete, but <laughs> whenever I can, I try to get out a couple times a week. I, wait, I set my alarm for about 5.30, I snooze it a couple times, and I leave the house about 5.45. You know, I pull on my Lycra bib shorts, I clip into my bike, turn on my lights, and I go for a ride. I join with a whole bunch of other cyclists, and we ride circles around Centennial Park. Sometimes we go to the eastern suburbs, or sometimes we ride, at, we ride to La Perouse to watch the sunrise. I've gone on cycling holidays, um, and most of the times, whenever we go on holiday, I always ask Melody, can I bring my bike? I've gone to the Victorian high country, climbing tops of mountain peaks and descending a lot faster than I went up. Even earlier this year, I went on a road trip with Pastor Pete, where we both rode to the top of Mount Kosciuszko. And people always ask me, why do you do it? Riding a bike is so boring. It looks so painful. And you look so stupid in Lycra. And they usually get stuck on that last point. I would have to tell them the joys of cycling, of, of riding through somewhere that no one's ever ridden through before, of sensation of descending a mountain at over 80 k's an hour, the sense of accomplishment as you finally reach the top of that hill, the top of that mountain but they don't get it. They think it looks stupid that you put Lycra on. I've had multiple conversations with Melody, my wife, on you know, why I need this new helmet, why I need a new bike, why I need more Lycra. And some of you are looking at me going, oh, and that's the same look that she has. Why, why do you need this, that, or that now? I would explain, it helps me go faster. I'll be, I'll be more comfortable. And look, I'll be honest, I just want to look nice in Lycra. <laughs> You know, as a cyclist, I always have to justify what I do. I have to justify waking up early, justify looking weird in Lycra. You know the funny looks that you give at people when they have cycling shoes and they walk around the cafe and just clicking everywhere? I have to justify doing that. You know, in the last few days, just before Jesus' death and resurrection, we see this amazing story here in Mark 14. And we actually see how people respond to who Jesus is. We see four responses here, which is the four points of my talk. Four perspectives of Jesus. Jesus is a problem. Jesus is good, but not great. Jesus is sellable. And Jesus is priceless. Read with me verses 1 and 2 again. Jesus is a problem. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. 
and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or people may riot. The Passover was a Jewish festival. For the Jews remember their time in Egypt when they were um, slaves in Egypt. It was the event where a spirit of God passed through Egypt, through the city, and every house that had the blood of a lamb on the doorpost would be passed over. That's where they get the name from. But if there was no blood on the doorpost, then the firstborn son would be killed. Passover, there was death. Either the death of a lamb or the death of a firstborn son. The festival was a way for the Jewish people to remember God saving them from the oppression of Egypt. It was probably the most important festival on the Jewish calendar. You know, the Jews at this time were under Roman control. So you can see how this festival could have been a reminder for them. Hey, our God is good, remember? He freed us from Egypt. And one day, one day, maybe he will free us from Rome. That's the hope of the Jewish people. But instead of celebrating and remembering God's salvation, the Jewish leaders here, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, are scheming to arrest and to kill Jesus. Do you see how that's just completely turned upside down? It's a complete reversal of what you would expect. God at the Passover kills the firstborn of Egypt to free the Jews, and now the Jewish leaders here celebrate their freedom by plotting to kill Jesus, God's only son. You know, we've seen over the past month the Gospel of Mark, this growing animosity, this growing hatred towards Jesus. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, they were once the center of Jewish society. They were upheld by society. They have been being the elite of society. But now they're being pushed into the background. Jesus has come to town. He's done more than they could ever do. He's healed the sick. He's forgiven sin. He's raised the dead. To the Jewish elite, Jesus was a problem. Jesus is a problem and the solution is to get rid of him. He's a liability. Let's just kill him and let's get over it. He's a threat to our position. He's a threat to our security. He's a threat to our influence. Jesus is a problem. But I wonder what that looks like for us today. We can't plot to kill Jesus anymore. But though we may not be able to plot to kill Jesus, I think we still see Jesus as a problem. He hinders the way I want to live my life. We reject Jesus by changing who he is. We change our understanding of him to make it easier for us, to make it more palatable for us. We avoid the Jesus who talks about judgment and hell and only about the one who loves and accepts. We speak only of what is comfortable to us, but not the whole truth of who Jesus is. I don't want to believe in a Jesus who judges, so I'll only have a Jesus who loves and accepts me. Jesus calls all Christians to suffer, and I don't like that. It goes against my comfortable lifestyle, so I'll just believe a different Jesus. Jesus is a problem. He affects our security. He calls up to give us more than we want to. To turn away from the world, it goes against everything I am, so I'll just change it. It's so easy to do it, isn't it? It's as easy as applying a filter to our Instagram. You can apply a filter to Jesus and change who he is and what he says. We can be so quick to think that we don't behave like Jewish leaders when we filter out and change what the Bible says we are. 
we're doing the same thing as them. We put our own comforts, our own securities, our own influence over who Jesus is. Let's look at the next few verses, verses 3 to 6. Jesus is good but not great. Read with me. Verse 3, While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simeon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. In community groups this week, um, we looked at this passage. Uh, we looked at what someone looked up Nard and it was from Tibet. It's a long way away from Jerusalem. So it's a very expensive perfume poured over Jesus' head. I remember asking my community group, who thinks this was a waste? And everyone thought it was a waste. It's a bit of the mantra of our day, isn't it? You know, enjoy things in moderation. Too much of anything is a bad thing. You know, Mark has put this woman's extravagant worship and love of God, love of Jesus, in between two stories of people who want to get rid of Jesus. You know, verses 1 and 2 talk about the chief priests and the leaders of the law, and chapters 10, uh, verses 10 and 11 talks about Judas selling Jesus out. Mark wants us to see how opposite and contrasting these reactions are. The, the people in the room, which were most likely Jesus' disciples, they were shocked, they were outraged. What, a way, what are you doing? Do you know how much this is worth? Do you know how many people we could have helped? And you've just wasted that on Jesus. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. Have you ever seen someone show adoration to someone or something where you're just like, what a waste? That's completely over the top. For me, when I was about to do a ministry apprenticeship to be trained up in the gospel and to see whether I was suitable for full-time gospel ministry, I remember saying to my dad, you know, I want to do this to see whether I can serve God with my whole life. And he said this to me, it is good that you're pursuing something that you're passionate about. But remember, don't go overboard with it. You know, Jesus is good, but he isn't worth everything. Yeah, it's okay to serve, to give, and to love, but not everything. There are things of this life that you still need to take care of, things that you need to commit to. Jesus is good, but only in moderation. Yeah, Easter, Christmas, every Sunday, that's okay. Oh, small groups every week, spending your summer holidays on mission instead of holidays, giving away a percentage of your salary to support people in universities so that other people can hear about Jesus for the first time. You're giving a lot of your money and time and effort in this. Don't go overboard with it. It is the idea that Jesus is good but not great that holds Christians back in our service. We fail to see how much Jesus is worth. Therefore, our service to him is always less than what it should be. Our worship and love for Jesus is matched with what we think he's worth. You know, we struggle to give things up because we struggle to see how much Jesus is worth. You know, we read this story and we think, wow, this woman, so wasteful. Years' wages, gone in a moment. 
You know, she isn't wasteful because she knows who Jesus is. It's just because we don't see Jesus in the same way that she does. We'll come back to verses 7 to 9, but I want us to skip down and look at verses 10 and 11 first. And let's look at how Judas responds. This is my third point. Jesus is sellable. Let me read verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Do you see that contrast, that sandwich again? The chief priests were plotting to kill Jesus. Jesus is anointed for his death by the woman and the perfume. And here we see that plan coming to fruition. Judas is about to sell out Jesus. He's about to betray Jesus. In other gospel accounts, we actually see that um, Judas was a greedy man. He used to take the money that was given to the poor and take a bit of it for himself. And it's actually a really sad story when you think about it. Judas, he's one of the 12 disciples. He's one of those who are closest to Jesus. He would have sat with Jesus. He would have had countless meals with Jesus. He would have traveled with Jesus as Jesus went around in his ministry. He would have been a first-hand witnesses to all those miracles that Jesus did. He would have heard the teachings of Jesus with his own ears. But he still betrayed Jesus. Judas doesn't see Jesus the same way that this woman sees Jesus. In fact, we know from Matthew's account of this story that he valued Jesus' life as 30 pieces of silver. The chief priest gave Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Now, 30 pieces of silver is worth about five months' wage, just over a month, uh, five weeks' worth of wage, sorry. So just over a month's wage. It's not a lot of money when you think about it that way. You know, to sell out a friend, to betray someone, let alone the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the King Jesus. We're very quick to think that we're not like Judas, but I think we really are. We're really just the same as Judas. I know for me, I battle with sin, temptation, and many times I fall short. I sell Jesus out for cheap pleasures. Our hearts are inclined to sell Jesus short. You know, Judas did it for 30 pieces of silver. Some of us do it for a click of a web page. Some of us do it for a promotion. Some of us do it for a relationship. These things are absolutely worthless when compared to who Jesus is. The Bible here shows us how sinful and depraved mankind really is. We trade the eternal joy of who Jesus is for cheap, momentary thrills. This ought to shake us. Those who call themselves Christians, those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is a warning for us. Don't be complacent. Don't think, you know, my relationship with Jesus is good. I'll stand firm. You know, I don't think Judas was set out to sell Jesus out. But he did. And so we have to be careful. We have to watch our lives. The Bible commentator said this about this passage, and I think it really sums it up well. Jesus will either be our sacrifice, or he will be sacrificed by us. Jesus will either be our sacrifice, 
or he will be sacrificed by us. Jesus gave himself for us to reconcile us to God by his death and resurrections. Christians, we need to hold firm to that gospel truth. If you're not a follower of Jesus, that's the gospel, that he died and rose again to reconcile us to God. That's what Jesus has done. As Christians, if we don't hold on to that, the good news of the gospel, if we give that up, we trade it for cheap, cheap temporary pleasures of this world. We need to hold on to the gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done. The chief priests and the leaders sacrificed Jesus for the sake of their power and their influence. Judas does it for 30 pieces of silver. But this is all shown to us by the gospel writer Mark to make us aware what a great sacrifice Jesus has made. And this woman's pouring and worship and love by this alabaster jar of perfume for his burial. And this is my fourth and final point. Jesus is priceless. Look with me at verses 7 to 9. Oh, 6 to 9, sorry. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can have them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus is defending this woman. He's saying, this is okay. You know, the Bible has always had this chorus, this echo of taking care of the poor, taking care of the needy, taking care of the oppressed. But that always came after worshipping God. This woman is worshipping Jesus in a worthy way. She's giving up a great cost, both in pouring this expensive perfume, but also the cost of being so bold to do that in a situation where she faces so much rebuke for doing so. I was really convicted of this. Has my worship of Jesus ever been seen as wasteful? Has my worship of Jesus ever been seen as wasteful? What this woman did seems wasteful because they don't see Jesus as priceless. But to, Je- but to Jesus, she has done a great thing. But why does she do it? Why does she waste, or why does she use expensive perfume for Jesus? Why does she go through the shame and the cost of doing that? In verse 7, we have that. Verse 7 and 8, we see, The poor you will always have, but you won't always have me. She's preparing me for my burial. These are the last couple of days before Jesus is crucified on the cross. The last couple of days before his death. Jesus sees this as a preparation for his burial. This is a perfume to anoint someone's body so that the body won't stink at death. Jesus is basically the walking dead. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows he's going to be crucified. And Jesus is priceless because he goes to the cross. For this woman, she gives up this precious, expensive perfume because of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is ultimately about to give up everything for her. He gives up everything for me, and he gives up everything for you. Jesus has pointed to the cross time and time again in the last few chapters of Mark. 
that he would be handed over, crucified, and raised back to life. Mark 10.45 says this, and it puts it really well. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Jesus' disciples, they don't get that. They don't get that, but this woman does. For this woman, she looks forward to the cross and the resurrection, but we look back to the empty tomb. Jesus has fulfilled this word. He has died. He has given his life as a ransom for the world. He has come back to life to secure us for God. Jesus has shed his blood so that we could be right with God, so that we could have forgiveness for all the times that we've sinned against God. You know, that song, When I Survey, you know, the great sacrifice of Jesus demands our worship, my life, my all. It demands the abandonment of our pursuits and of our passions. Perfume costs a year's wage, but in light of who Jesus is, it's nothing. A year's wage in a moment poured out onto the floor. What would the perfume be for you? What would be your perfume that you give out for Jesus? Would it be that you don't take that job promotion that would tie you up, but instead you went part-time in your work so you can teach scripture in the local schools, so you can spend more time serving at church? That would seem wasteful to the world. Would it mean you spend more of your time devoted to your brothers and sisters in Christ, to be praying for them regularly, to be reading the Bible with them instead of spending hours behind at work to keep up with a rat race? just so you can earn favor with your superiors. That would seem wasteful. Would it mean that you don't buy a house in Sydney, so that your funds won't be tied down, so that you can give financially to support gospel ministry, that you give up some of your security so that gospel ministries can be more secure? That would seem wasteful to the world. For the parents, and I say this with caution as I have no children, but would it mean that you don't push your children to get that scholarship, to study so much, to enter into selective schools, to chase education as a means of security for their future, but instead you spend time with them, showing them the areas of your life that you trust God no matter what, that you're devoted to God and growing them up in the gospel, in the faith and the knowledge of Christ Jesus that would seem wasteful. For those with older kids, would it mean not being a barrier to them going into gospel ministry? In fact, to allow them and to encourage them to do that, to commit their lives full-time for God and being their biggest supporters in doing that. All this would seem wasteful and foolish unless you see Jesus as priceless, unless you see Jesus as worth it. So I think this passage today challenges us. How do you see Jesus? How do you see Jesus? Is he a problem that you need to fix and change? Is he good that you'll give some, but not great, so you won't give everything? Is he tradable and sellable that you can use him when you need and get rid of him when you don't? Or is Jesus actually priceless? 
Because how we see Jesus will be how we respond to Jesus. This woman gave greatly because she saw who Jesus was and what he came to do. And I think this passage challenges us that we need to respond to who Jesus is and what he has done. If you're new to Christianity and you're new to church, if you're not a follower of Jesus, please explore who Jesus is. Explore what he has done. Ask the person who brought you, ask the person sitting next to you who Jesus is and what he has done. Take a Bible home. Read Mark's gospel account of Jesus' life for yourself to see what he's done and who he is. If you're already a follower of Jesus and you would call yourself a Christian, look at this woman. Look at how she responds to who Jesus is. Look at what she does to worship Jesus. To prepare him for the cross and know that Jesus has died and he has been resurrected. We need to remember that he is the glorious king of kings, the one who gave his life as a ransom for you. We need to respond rightly to who Jesus is because he is worthy of everything. He's worthy of our careers, of our relationships, of our families, and even our lives. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this testimony of this woman and her worship of you. We thank you so much for Jesus that he came to earth not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We thank you that he completed that by his death and resurrection on the cross. I pray that you would help us, give us eyes to see the glorious Christ of who he is and what he has done. I pray that you would change our hearts to worship you rightly in the way that you deserve, which is all of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.